everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. The role for retail is changing in terms of what experience means. Or we see real success is curation. And so you go to a store that's not, you know, a little bit of everything. It's a store that dives deep into a lifestyle or deep into a fashion style or deep into a demographic. And you go there and you immerse yourself in that brand and you immerse yourself in what that brand is about. And that's the kind of discovery. Convenience is king. Everyone wants the easiest experience possible, but they also expect that experience to be seamless and delightful at the same time. When it comes to shopping, e-commerce has been able to bring all those elements together better than in-store retailers. But even though brick and mortar retailers are facing an uphill battle, Joe Jensen believes that they aren't going anywhere and there are still massive innovations to be seen to make a more cohesive experience. Joe is a vice president in the Internet of Things group and the general manager of the retail banking, hospitality and education group at Intel. He is helping brands across all industries and of all sizes become more nimble and data centric. According to Joe, there are simple changes retailers can implement to solve big problems so long as you're asking the right questions, like what if you could solve all of your inventory issues with a simple technology that has already been in existence for years? And how can brands leverage in-store experiences as more of an enhancement to customers who typically enjoy online shopping, but crave something more in-person? On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Joe answers those questions and more. Plus, he explains how and why traditional retailers should be utilizing more data just like their e-commerce competitors, and he gives a first look into the technologies that will be making an impact on the future of retail. Enjoy this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Before we dive into the episode, I want to let you in on a little secret. Did you know that Mission has the number one e-commerce newsletter? It's amazing. It has really good news and insights and case studies that you will not find anywhere else. So go subscribe, mission.org slash up next in commerce. All right, on to the show. everyone and welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles, co-founder at mission.org. Today on the show, we have Joe Jensen, Vice President and General Manager of Retail, Banking, Hospitality, and Education at Intel. Joe, how's it going? Uh, Fantastic. Beautiful day here in Phoenix. Good. Yeah, I'm glad to hear it. That is a mouthful title, but I feel like you deserve it when you've been somewhere for 36 years, I saw. Isn't that scary? I don't even think I'm 36 years old, so it's weird. <laughs> That's amazing, actually. I want to just start there. Tell me, you know, how did your journey begin at Intel and what are you doing today? What's your day-to-day look like now versus 36 years ago? 
Well, I started as a product development engineer at Intel, and I worked in a bunch of different uh, product disciplines as an engineer. Uh, my original life plan was really to leave Intel at about year 10 and go to a startup. Mm-hmm. But by year 10, Intel stock options were so attractive that I ended up leaving. So uh, got I got pulled and handcuffed into the company. Yeah. As with most tech companies, I was this close to staying at Google for the same reason where I'm like, oh, it's hard to leave. I see my options vesting in year three and five and seven, and you can just extrapolate it out and it, it'll keep you there. Yeah. I shifted from engineering to to the business side at about year seven. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've done a, a ton of different business uh, startups in the company. Uh, and I think one of the things I'm most proud of, I've, I've started three businesses that that were at zero and have hit over 500 million a year. Oh, wow. So what are the businesses that you've worked on? Uh, two different ones in the embedded space. And then uh, now uh, the retail, uh, retail banking and hospitality. Mm-hmm. Uh, education's kind of added into that. But that business started, gosh, uh, it started at, at single digit millions. And uh, we grew it to, uh, well, we're, we're the largest business within the IoT space at Intel, I can say. That's cool. So tell me a bit about when you're saying IoT and then retail banking, now education, like how do I imagine what you guys are doing for your partners? Like, what are you providing them? What does that look like? Yeah, in our space, uh, the IT space for Intel is really where IT for an enterprise meets the real world. Uh, So in the case of retail, you know, it could be digital signs, uh, point of sale systems, uh, inventory management, uh, building management, you know, time clocks, kind of any system that might be connecting into IT. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you go into the manufacturing side, which is in my space, but manufacturing units, it's where equipment uh, data flows in off the manufacturing side, flows into the enterprise. And how many opportunities are being missed right now by not implementing, I mean, I would say data analytics, like you're talking about when it comes to inventory. I know that Walmart for a while was trying to figure out like how to track out of stock issues. And it was really hard, even when they had the cameras going around the lanes because they couldn't see behind what was you know in front of it. And I don't know if they figured it out yet. Maybe you know better than me. But like, what kind of opportunities are being missed by not having this implemented into retail stores? You know, as an engineer, I really think about root cause and, and, and what's the underlying problem. And, and we really believe that inventory inaccuracy is one of the underlying problems in physical retail. Mm-hmm. And, and the problem you have is if, if it's customer can't find it in the store, uh, it's out of stock. Yeah. Doesn't matter if it's in the back room. Doesn't matter if it's hidden behind, you know, some items on the shelf. It doesn't matter if it's misplaced. Uh, if the customer can't find it, it's out of stock. Uh, you know, we have data and research that shows that that one percent of customers who experience an out of stock will go through the whole journey of you know they search on the shelf for it. You know they go track down a staff person to go find it. Uh, they dig through the rack. Or they don't find it. They say, hey, hold on, let me go check in the back. They'll go look in the back, and they come out, and then maybe they go to the POS and they they do it, look to see if another store has it, or they'll ship it to your house. One mm-hmm. percent of shoppers are that patient. That's me. I'm that 1%. I did that the other day at Pottery Barn. But then I was very upset at the end because it was like, just like what you said, let me look in the back. Not there. Let me look at our partner stores. Not there. Let me look online. Ooh, it's not the size you want. And at the end, I'm like, ah, okay, goodbye. I never want to come back again. I love Pottery Barn. I saw a study that that showed that uh, um, if a customer experiences that out of stock frustration five times in a store, Mm -hmm. they stop going. Yeah, I can see that. So how do you go about solving something like that to get all your systems to talk? I mean, you know, I, I still think um, RFID is going to play a key role. Mm-hmm. Uh, Japan has a huge labor shortage problem. You know, they, they just said because of the aging of their population, they don't have enough labor. Yep. And the government decided four or five years ago to put a big push on RFID. And they're mandating that by 2025, 
all consumer goods that, that are sold in China have to come from the manufacturer RFID tagged. Hmm. And, and that essentially keeps everything paper. inventoried, right? Like then you don't yeah, have so to worry about it. Yeah, so what happens is you don't even need staff to check out now because mm-hmm. consumers will put their, their items in a basket, set the basket on, on the checkouts, and, and it'll read all the tags, and then we'll just pay and go. So it's kind of like the Amazon ghost where they're experimenting with but I don't know whatever actually happened to that. Like I went into one in Seattle maybe two years ago, but are they still around? Like what happened with the Amazon stores like that? Yeah, they're, they're still running. Uh, they, they do a tremendous amount of business. I don't know how much of it is because of convenience and how much of it is the novelty. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, I suspect that they're augmenting a lot of that with, with human capital behind the scenes. Yeah. I do think that you're going to find, you know, retail bifurcating into two types of retail. You're going to see the uh, hyper convenient side, which is you just want to take all the friction out. How do I take all the hassle? How do I take all the friction out for the shopper? And I think for, you know, staples, day-to-day things, you know, you want to go pick up fast food, fast food should be fast. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a, I won't, I won't throw the chain under the bus, but there's a, there's a, a new uh, location in our house. And I swear there's a three hour wait all day, every day. Oh my gosh. Fast food just isn't that good for me. I'm not going to wait in line for three hours to get, get my fast food. No. And so I think you know, on, the, on the hyper convenience side, we think that's a big part of, of retail. Uh, and then on the other side is we're calling hyper experience. And with hyper experience, it's, it's shopping is, is an enjoyment and a pastime for a lot of people. And, you know, during the pandemic, obviously you can't go to the mall, you can't go shopping like you used to, but you know, that will come back. Mm-hmm. And, and in that you want to go get experiences. You don't want to go to, you know, department store A and then walk down the mall to department store B. And if you close your eyes, uh, when you walked in, you wouldn't know which store you're in. Mm-hmm. Now, if they all have the same assortment, they all have the same brands, they all have the same brand micro stores inside, the, inside their, their, their uh, department store, you know, what's the experience that you're delivering to the consumer? Yep. Um, if you go try to find a piece of a, a clothing and it's out of stock, how's that experience? That's not a very good experience. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. I had a, um, one of my engineers in China explaining how he really has everything delivered. All his groceries, all his food, you know, China has, is just hyper convenient from that perspective. Yeah. And it's but they're cool. used to it. it. They grew up like that, though, where I feel like here, if you try and introduce some of those conveniences or be like, you know, everything should be done this way. I don't know. I think Americans are a little bit more like, oh, that's weird. Like, I don't because we just didn't have to do it's things. Really cultural differences. But yeah. I love this quote from him. And he said, if I'm going to bother to put pants on and leave my apartment, it better be worth it. <laughs> that's pretty great. And true. I feel that. When it's like, you know, if, if I need uh, batteries, do I want to get in the car and drive and go buy batteries? Well, yeah. if, if I do that and I go to the store and they don't have that special battery, then it's really disappointing because now I spent 20, 30 minutes going out of my house to go get something because I wanted it right now and then they don't have it. Yep. And after consumers do that a few times, they just start ordering online. Yeah. But, and I think the product, like you said, has to be, or like he said, has to be worth it. And I mean, how are you guys thinking about the experiences piece? Because we've had quite a few guests come on the show who have talked about their retail locations and turning them more into an experiential place where you go there and you've got, you know, the certain music and the vibes, and maybe you've got a yoga class going on over here and you're going there not just to maybe pick up your product that you did order online during this time period, uh, but you're also going there to maybe experience something that you wouldn't get elsewhere. And I mean, a lot of people are saying retail's dead and I definitely do not see that happening. I'm like, there is pent up demand to go in person and to go into stores. But I do think now there's going to be a new level of like expectations of the consumers, not just going to want to go and shop around. They're going to want something else. How do you view yeah, I that? I think that, you know, the, the, the role for retail is, is changing in terms of what experience means. Mm-hmm. If you go back, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, uh, shoppers didn't know what the new fashions were. 
until they went to their favorite store and they saw what the new fashions were. And so, so you went to, to your favorite store, you know, whether you're a, you know, a, a Neiman Marcus shopper or a Macy's shopper or a Target shopper, you went to the store to see what's available, what's, what's in now. And there was that discovery and learning and value proposition that that, that store was giving you by bringing you um, things that fit your demographic. Um, today, people know what's, what's current as the store learns what's current. You know, it's what the celebrities are wearing between social media and, and how quick things are in internet time. There is really no discovery value proposition uh, for mass merchandise things. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we see real success is curation. And so you go to a store that's, that's not, you know, a little bit of everything. It's a store that dives deep into, into a lifestyle or deep into a, 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 a fashion style or deep into a demographic. And, and you go there and you immerse yourself in that brand and you immerse yourself in, in what that, that brand is about. Yeah. And, and that's the kind of discovery. You know, if, if you're someone who likes, uh, you know, West Elm and, and the, the, the style that West Elm delivers, you go to West Elm to see things that would be hard to find on your own elsewhere. If you wanted to go find your own curation, it would take you, you know, months of time on the internet trying to go discover all that stuff. But you can go to a store where their buyers have pulled that look together for you. Yep. If you're a pottery barn shopper, you, you know, same, same kind of thing, right? You go to pottery barn and, and they've got, they've curated a set of things that, that um, fit a, a certain demographic and lifestyle that they're looking for. So I think you're going to see a lot more of that curation. Uh, we did tour in New York city a couple of years ago. And the stores that were really doing amazingly well were really deep into that curation idea. Yeah, I love that. I completely agree. I mean, I'm thinking right now about going into a crate and barrel or something like that, and I'm looking to find new things of a similar style instead of going somewhere that's exactly the same that I can just find online. And yeah, that's a really interesting take. How are you viewing like the omni-channel experience of making sure that it's frictionless when someone's looking online and then going into the store and like having a good experience online and offline? I think a few retailers are, are starting to really get it right. Uh, I think in the beginning, Omnichannel was a poor band-aid for I'm out of stock in the store. Yep. And I think most customers didn't really, didn't see that as, as a good solution. I think, you know, the, the right way to think of Omnichannel is there used to be a really consistent funnel for how shoppers and the shopper journey went from just initial discovery all the way through purchase. And that funnel, I think, no longer exists. Uh, I think people find about find out about products all over the place. Mm-hmm. You might see it on a television show. You might hear about it uh, from a friend. You might see it on social media. And, and your discovery happens in your life. And, and Omnichannel really ought to enable you to easily uh, find something you're interested in whenever you see it or whenever you want to. Yeah. You know, there was an old Burger King commercial, you know, have it your way, I think, you know, 30 years uh-huh. ago. I, and I think omnichannel today really means um, that, that shoppers ought to be able to engage with a brand or engage with a product wherever and however they want to. Yep. And I like the idea too of like picking up where you left off. Like if I'm shopping online and then I enter the store or get near it, like a subtle reminder of, oh, hey, you were looking at this and it's actually here on aisle seven or whatever it is, like directing me to kind of, you know, complete the consumer journey. But I don't feel like it's there yet. I mean, I know, you know, we've got beacons and ability to like see when people are entering your store and track that. But it seems like not a lot of retailers have fully leaned into that method to make sure that the full experience is cohesive. Yeah, I think that, you know, we're, we're coming from the early days of that. Um, and, you know, one of my favorite stories years ago, we were shopping for a Tiffany lamp years ago, a couple of years ago, Tiffany mm-hmm. got a lamp. And, uh, you know, I searched online one night, looked at some options. Uh, we went to a store and we bought a Tiffany lamp. And for the next two months, every banner ad I had on the internet was for Tiffany lamps. Yeah. 
It's like I'm past Tiffany now. I'm on to the next kind of lamp. Well, and it's just it's um I, I think that you know what's happened is there's been uh too much of trying to use algorithms and online searches and data to try to target individuals um with things that you think they might be interested in, and not enough focus on helping people build a cart of things that you are interested in. And so, for example, imagine if you turn it around for a minute and the brand for an item that you're interested in has an ability for you to put something you're interested in in a basket. And then when you pass a store that carries that item that has it in stock, they flag you that this thing you're interested in is in this store. And it's almost yep. turning it all the way around from the store, you know, or, or the brand, you know, pushing to, you know, having the brand help guide you to where you, you find things. Yeah. That's really good. I mean, that's the kind of world I'm, I would like to live in where it actually is helpful and not annoying. I was just speaking with another guest about uh, text messages and how certain retail locations will be like, come on in for 20% off. And I'm like, it's not helpful when I'm sitting on my couch watching The Bachelor. It's helpful when I'm walking into the store and they're like, hey, you better make sure you buy that rug from World Market because here's a coupon now. So make sure you finish the journey. Don't just walk in and out. So well, but that's, yeah, like you, you, said, you raised another point. I think that's one of the things um, I think that retailers especially are missing. And, you know, I, I don't know what a good analogy is, but I think that discounts and sales and coupons are an overused tool and they mm-hmm. influence a lot of people, but not everybody. And, and I think that, you know, for some people being first is more important than, than getting it on sale uh, for other people, you know, uh, something scarce and, and having access to it before it runs out. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity, even just convenience, you know, take a, a grocery store, nearly every grocery store I've ever been in, they put all the staples in the back and they, they run with, you know, 19th century um, retail logic of, oh, if I make people walk all the way through the store, they might buy some more stuff. Not me. I got blinders on. I'm like, Pew, I need my milk and goodbye. When it, you know, it turns out that, you know, the, the convenience stores like a 7-Eleven sell a ton of milk. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever bought a gallon of milk at 7-Eleven. I have. Yeah. I mean, hey, my two-year-old, desperate times, desperate measures. And it's about convenience. And so, you know, if I were in a grocery chain, in fact, I talked to one about this big chain recently and said, you know, why don't you take your house brands of of the staples and put them in a a section in the front of the store where they're super convenient and mark them up, make them the same price or maybe even a little bit more than the branded stuff. And the the answer was, well, we tried that and it didn't work. I'm like, oh, when did you do that? It was like 10 years ago. I'm like, people have changed a lot in 10 years. Yeah. I'd rather pay more to get right to it. So what are some maybe interesting stories like that where they have listened to your advice and they've seen good results or yeah, anything where you're like, oh, I remember this one customer did this and they you know, increased revenue a bunch because of this one subtle tweak in the store layout or how they did their products or inventory or whatever it may be. Well, we'll start a little bit maybe with um, pretty much in every case when we've helped a retailer um, you know, test or try uh, a technology uh, the results always exceed the, the kind of indicators that they put forward. And the very bewildering thing to us is that, that even though these, these um, solutions look to deliver tremendous results and impact, they still don't scale them. Mm-hmm. Years ago, I had a par- we had a partner that was putting cameras in the ceiling uh, to look at, um, to measure shopper engagement. You know, how long does it take for a staff to engage a customer? And they happen to have as an artifact of that, they had, uh, I won't say the brand, but they had a brand of, of uh, popular, very popular cola was in the camera view on the shelf. And they observed that this, uh, this diet version of this cola was out of stock almost all the time. Mm-hmm. And so they went to the, to the head of all stores for this giant grocery chain and said, hey, you know, I think that there's an opportunity for you to, 
to, uh, you know, actually it was, I'm sorry, the brand, they went to the brand and said, you know, you got an out of stock problem in this grocery chain. And the guy they talked to said, oh, there's no way. You know, I was head of merchandising in Southern California. We have people in that store twice a day checking inventory. It's, it's inventory, you know, stocked twice a week. We are never out of product. And they're like, oh, really? Here's some video of, of how much you're out of stock. And it turned out that within a half a day that they stocked, they would sell out and they would be out of stock all day. Mm-hmm. And, and the problem we run into is you put process in place and you tell people to follow the process and it may or may not happen. So they look at they looked at this and they're like, well, there's tremendous value in 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 having this this product in stock. It's a driver product for the store. If they're out of stock and the, the store cares that they're you know they, they they're not in stock, and the cost of deploying the solution was you know probably thirty dollars a month you know per store, not a huge thing for one of their top seventy driver products, and yet it never scaled. You know these things. You know there was another one where the labor they they showed this thirty uh, percent increase in tool sales in a major <laughs> chain by tracking the staff and and, and shopper engagement. In improving that, it was really simple solution. Uh, almost never scales. Now, one that we have seen scale, uh, Theatro uh, makes a, a voice over IP earpiece setup mm-hmm. for staff. And so, if you go to, I think um, Bass Pro Shops is an example. Um, there, who's the one that that uh, does jeans and apparel for uh, uh, teens? They all they always have an oh, earpiece for- and a radio. Oh, um, anyway, does, does Hollister matter. Gap? Uh, so, so a lot of, a lot of retailers use radios and yeah. the ra- there's a cost in the radios and, and for a kind of a parody, they can switch over to this, this voice over IP. And this is one where we're seeing people test it. And then in a matter of weeks, completely change uh, all, all their devices over. Uh, and, and the value in that, if you look at it, if you're on a radio network, everybody that has an earpiece in their ear, hears all the chatter from everybody all day. And yeah. with this new solution, you can, you can address a message to an individual person. And so only the person you want to talk to gets the message. And then there's the ability to kind of ask for stock and, uh, and, and deliveries and things like that. So uh, they've also built the ability with some of their customers. So as somebody drives up to do a pickup, you know, you order online, pick up at the curb. Uh, you don't want that to be a, a high friction experience. You want to be able to pull up very quickly, have somebody bring your item and leave. So where do you think then the future of retail, like, what does it look like with all these like new, I mean, some of them kind of feel like little tweaks, like, you know, a radio where you just talk to who you want to me, like some of those things feel little, like why are there not enough incentives for these retail stores to change? I know you had mentioned wall street, maybe beating up on um, retailers a little bit when it comes to like wanting to try new and innovative things. Like, what do you think is holding back retail right now? Part of it is wall street. Again, back to that root cause uh, problem. There's a set of retailers that we think of as digital natives. And these are uh, brands that started as a purely online brand, and now they're going to open up stores. And they, they realize once they get to about a billion dollars or so in, in revenue to get to the next level, they've got to go physically open stores to expand their reach. And these yeah, digital, like the Warby Parkers of the yeah, world. Exactly. And these digital native retailers, um, when they come into the physical world, they expect access to the same kind of insights that they've been getting with their online entity. You know, they want to understand, you know, uh, how many shoppers are coming in and when, what's the dwell, you know, when people are picking things up and putting them down and not buying them, it's like something in your cart that you, you, know, you took back out. And they come in with a long list of insights that they'd like to be able to get in the retail operation. And, and, and the question to Intel is, how can you help me find people that can, can bring these solutions or help me deploy these solutions? And when I go to more traditional brick and mortar retail, the conversation is um, trying to convince them they should have these insights. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that, you know, a part of it is the digital natives come from a world of, you know, when you're, when you're online only, 
the only insight you have into your shopper is through the data trail they leave behind them. And, and I think if you, if you go into brick and mortar, you know, they're not used to capitalizing or utilizing that data. Talked to one partner recently, I haven't validated this, but they said that the amount of data that Walmart generates in a day would take 26 years to upload to the cloud given traditional techniques. Wow. So, so there's a tremendous amount of data created in the enterprise of retail every day. And we think with IoT and the cost uh, of compute coming down so much and the ability to use AI to get insights, you can utilize a lot of this data at the edge without incurring that cost of moving it to the cloud and trying to process it there. And I think that if, if you yeah. imagine that you, you're moving petabytes of data to the cloud and you're trying to find the needles in the haystack, it's a really big haystack. And you know, how about if I just try to sift through the insights real time as they're occurring in the store? Mm -hmm. uh, we talked to a, a major fast food chain uh, who prides themselves on fresh product. And uh, that one of their major problems, I, I won't say what the product is, but they were throwing away 40% of their product to maintain the freshness. And they wanted to have a short wait because they, they understood friction was important and they, freshness was important for the brand, but they were having a huge product waste problem. And they wanted to use predictive analytics to understand what's happening in the parking lot, what's happening in the drive-through and what's my queue look like in the store so they could predict when to put product in the cooker versus you know, yeah. cooking it always and then having it there just in case. And were you guys able to help with that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, that, that kind of uh, change drives tremendous business cost savings, but it also ensures that your product is fresh and that your customers are, satis are satisfied. They don't have any wait for product. And so you've done well. We think these insights deliver not only customer satisfaction, but also tremendous business impact. Yeah. Well, I mean, that also makes sense for why a lot of the more legacy retailers are scooping up all these D2C brands and kind of keeping them separate and learning from them to see kind of like, oh, what are you guys doing over there? And then starting to integrate them into the org to maybe be brought up to speed a bit with like, you know, how maybe retail should operate from a digital perspective and what are the expectations coming in from someone who's used to that and how can they get implemented into the org? We had someone on from Kellogg's who said just that they would acquire different D2C brands, but then kind of keep them you know, off on their own. So they didn't get too mixed into the Kellogg's culture because they wanted, you know, the D2C brands to stay kind of as their own brand. So they didn't, I guess, turn too corporate. If that's well, a good and, about and thing, I, I wouldn't know. maybe not say corporate. I think they, they, you don't want to turn them old school. You yeah, want, exactly. Okay. You know, we see the same, same thing. And you mentioned expectations. You know, one of the, and that, the ways we explain these consumer expectations Every time you have a better consumer experience on, on, your, on your mobile, you know, better app experience, you, in the back of your mind, you wonder why every experience isn't that good. You know, you know I'm, yeah. old, I'm old enough that, you know, I used to travel where you had to go to the ticket counter to get your boarding passes before you could print them at home. Um, and then they went mm -hmm. to kiosk where you could print them at the airport. And that was an amazing improvement. And then they went to actually really pretty good apps. So airline apps, you, you can see if there's a meal on the plane, you can pick your seat. You can do quite a few things, check the status of the incoming flight, et cetera. Airline apps are really pretty good. And then you, and I travel a ton and I stay in hotels all the time. Why are the hotel apps worse than the airline apps? Why can't I pick my room? That's true. Why? I'm sure you probably asked them well, before. Well, actually, it, it's interesting. It turns out that, that most hotel chains are using a third-party service to, to assign and block rooms. Yep. So they don't actually Got have it. control over that, which is kind of crazy. And, and so, you know, I think what happens is anytime you have this better experience as a consumer, then, then it raises the bar on your expectations for every other experience. Mm -hmm. uh, you, know, I, you know, cabs were, I, I've never enjoyed a cab ride, not once in my nope. life, I think. No, uh, and never. Uber, you know, realized early that there, were, you know, there was a huge amount of friction in getting a ride and people hated cabs. You know, you call for a cab, 
All they would do is throw it on the radio network and maybe a cab responds, maybe not. You didn't have any predictability. When you get to your location, the last thing you want to do is sit there in the cab on the street corner and spend two or three minutes paying the cab driver. Yeah, awkward. <laughs> and, and, you know, they understood that there was this huge friction. Well, now that Uber's taken the friction out of getting a ride, consumers see friction elsewhere in their life. And like, why do I have this friction? Why is, yeah. why is this not as good as an Uber? So what, what areas do you think are the biggest friction points when it comes to retail locations right now? And like, what do you wish things were looking like maybe over the next like couple of years? Like, what are you guys planning for? Where are you hoping the world will be in like three to five years? Well, we think that you're going to see a lot more delivery. I think that grocery delivery was very slowly uh, ramping, uh, you know, pick up at the curb or delivery. And with the pandemic, a ton of people um, jumped in and tried it that probably wouldn't have tried it for a long time. And so the adoption curve for that took a real steep spike up. And, and we don't think that that adoption is going to slow down. So I think that, you know, the, the, uh, the grocery business, and the grocery business is tough. They run really slim margins. And, you know, we talked to one major chain and they said, if you pick up at the curb, they lose $5. And if they deliver, they lose 10 to 15. And so the chains have to figure out how they're going to deal with that. And there are a bunch of startups that are building uh, essentially dark store technology. So instead of having a retail location with a giant parking lot and a big square footage and employees, they'll end up with a small industrial space with all the same inventory, but some robotics that will pull stuff off the shelf and pack totes. Yep. We actually just talked to a company called Wolseley who talked about how they see the future being, I mean, they're B2B also for like, you know, plumbing and HVAC and things like that. But they were like, I'm not so sure. Like if retail for us anyways, is the way to go anymore, instead of just having a small guide shop out front and then just having, you know, a micro fulfillment center or, or a warehouse in the back, and then we get your stuff and give it to you on the curb. But like, why do you need to come in for their business anyways and shop around when a lot of times these contractors already know what they want. Like they don't need to walk around like they would at Home Depot. It's funny. I was at a, at a, a home improvement store recently and uh, I'm waiting in customer service to make a return. And, and they're on the phone with a customer who very wisely placed an order for like 50 things, probably a contractor, mm-hmm. but he did an online pickup at the curb order. And he's, they, they, they were on hold with this guy and they're talking to each other saying, we don't have the labor to go send, have somebody spend an hour running around the store to pick all this stuff. Yeah. Like, what a smart contractor. You know, why not have the home improvement staff eat that labor versus, you know, him send somebody. Yep. And he said, hey, can you yeah. please call me once it's all picked? That's and of course, smart. I had I mean, to say, you- sure, right? The manager's like, yeah, yeah. absolutely. But um, so I think what's going to happen is these expectations are going to keep rising from consumers and, and the retailer is going to have to figure out how to adapt. Yeah. It seems like just a pricing thing though. I mean, right now everyone is expecting a curbside delivery or something to be free because it's kind of new and that's the expectation now. But I could see eventually being like, if you want someone to shop for you, just like you would with any of these, you know, grocery delivery shopping apps, you're going to have to pay a little bit. Well, look at it this way. We talked again, one of these companies building these systems and we talked to a big chain that's, that's testing it. If you go to the normal kind of financial model for a grocery store, Big piece of real estate, prime location, huge parking lot, you know, a lot of, of physical assets tied up. Uh, and if you go to a dark store, uh, really cheap industrial space, uh, real estate. So the, the real estate model is completely different. The staffing model is completely different. Um, and the financials could be such that, and again, I don't know, but it actually might be cheaper to deliver groceries that way. It's a new approach, but again, it it's a huge change, but it doesn't necessarily have to mean higher prices for consumers. And I think what's going to happen is some will try to charge more and others will figure out how to go do it in a way that doesn't cost more. Oh, that's a good point. I like that. 
How are you thinking about new technology right now? I know we were talking a bit about AI and how it's impacting retail and retail workers. What are your thoughts around that or other technologies that are maybe going to disrupt well, retail? We, we still really believe a lot in computer vision. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things I'm really proud of for Intel is we've always been huge advocates and protectors of consumer privacy, personal privacy. So as a mm-hmm. company, you know, our core culture, our philosophy, our lobbying efforts are all around protecting privacy. And, and you know, our point of view in, in using cameras in retail, and we've been helping people do this for many years, uh, we only want to do it in a way that's totally anonymous. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's not like I'm de- trying to detect Joe when Joe walks in the store. I want to look at the, the pattern of behavior that this shopper has anonymously. And what have people in the past that had that similar pattern of behavior been interested in? And how might I go, you know, send some staff over to do the right thing there? So take me, for example, if we go to the mall and I'm with my wife or daughters, uh, I'm probably hanging out with them and I'm not really shopping. Mm-hmm. You're just, you're the person on the couch. It's chilling. Yeah. Or, or I might be wandering around in the men's department, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of killing time, but I'm probably open for somebody to come show me something because I'm browsing and you could observe that, oh, this person is slowly walking around and looking at stuff. There's other times when I need another white dress shirt for a business trip and I know exactly which door to park at that's the shortest distance to the white dress shirts and I'm walking in a direct line to a section. You know, c- computer vision and AI could detect that this shopper is not browsing. Don't bother them. Don't send them a, a, a discount coupon or don't send them alert to some new item they might be interested in. Do you have retailers right now who are implementing that? Because that sounds awesome and like a really good way to personalize to the shoppers coming in. Do you have anyone who's trying anything out yet? There've been lots of, of things to, to kind of experiment and test a lot of partners building solutions like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the world of privacy right now is, is, is way too fragmented, too many different points of view, uh, yeah. too many different state, you know, perspectives on it. Um, you've got some places where cameras are banned. You can't use a camera at all. Uh, and I think that, you know, the governments really need to get their act together and kind of understand how, how is the data going to be used? How is the technology used? How can it be done in a way to protect privacy? You know, in the implementations we advocate, no data ever leaves the, the, the edge, the system. Yep. The only thing that ever leaves the system is its account. You know, this kind of shopper did this kind of, you know, pattern of behavior. Uh, everything's fully anonymous. You know, back in the early days, we actually went and talked to governments across Europe where the, the privacy is even worse. And, and every government entity we talked to was totally comfortable with the approach we were, we were advocating. So I think you know, the, the computer vision that we think is really going to be profound, and it, it'll be used for mundane things like trying to understand, you know, out of stocks or inventory situation. Years ago, there was a, I won't say the name of the chain, but there was a study where they're comparing Amazon to a giant um, big box retailer. And they mm-hmm. went to 25 locations of the big box retailer and, and bought these 40 items, and then they priced it out on Amazon. And the headline for the story was Amazon was more expensive than the physical retail location, which was kind of big news at the time because everybody thought, oh, yeah. Amazon's just winning on price. Yeah, but the, the kind of the subtitle of the article, the second message was, but 25% of the items on average were out of stock at the brick and mortar retailer. Mm-hmm. And we happened to be meeting with the executives in that company about a week after that story came out and their heads were exploding because they thought they had a 5% out of stock problem. And it turns out that they did in terms of it was in the store. But they had a huge congestion of stuff in the back room that wasn't on the shelf yet. And as you dug into it further, we did a lot of work with them using computer vision and whatnot. This was years ago. And it turned out that one of the behaviors they had that they had to try to break is the people stocking the shelves would bring a box of, say, you know, large size mint shampoo out. And they needed to have the small and the large, but they didn't have the small. So they just filled the shelf up with the large. 
Mm-hmm. And so when somebody came to look for the small, it's out of stock and the shelf looked full because they would face it all out so that, you know, every front was, was full of product, but it, they didn't have all the products on the shelf. Yeah. And it was really because the people stocking the shelves were, were not following, uh, you know, the, the process and they're being lazy. So we just need robots then. Robots aren't lazy and they listen to whatever you tell them. So that must just be the way to fix things. Yeah. You know, maybe, I guess as a tech company, maybe <laughs> that's a good thing for us, but you know, I, I think that, um, again, if, if it's a staple, you just want it to be convenient. And convenient means mm-hmm. the fastest, easiest way possible. Um, you know, to me, it's like when, when I run out of ketchup, wouldn't it be amazing if it was just at my door automatically the moment I needed it? Well, you know, that, that we're not there yet. But uh, at some point, um, somebody's going to figure out how to make my running out of ketchup something that won't happen. Yeah, I thought there were brands or companies working on that to kind of track what's in your refrigerator and then reorder it if it's out is that maybe that never came to fruition and we actually had some some partners who were doing that years ago as well mm-hmm. um you know the challenge you run into it um i think is you know how do you know what's in your fridge do, does the consumer scan all the barcodes do you have the mm-hmm. discipline to scan a barcode when you run out these problems aren't are certainly aren't easy to solve you, we mentioned earlier out of stock so and kind of you know working at that problem we worked with probably I don't know, more than 20 big retailers on trying to see how RFID could help solve their, their inventory accuracy. And that we would always start with taking one of their stores and we would do a really deep physical inventory. And we never found a, uh, any retailer that had better than 65% of their SKUs correctly counted. Wow. That's kind of sad. And so then if you, if you want to be able to compete with you know, an online only retailer uh, who, who gives free shipping, you probably have to give free shipping. Well, wouldn't it be ideal if you could deliver um, all of your stuff from a local store so that you minimize the shipping time, uh, you minimize the shipping cost. Uh, but if you don't know what your inventory is, then you take an order, assuming you've got really close delivery, but then it's out of stock in the store. We talked to a department store who was really aggressively trying to do this fulfill from store. Mm-hmm. And they were spending on average 20 minutes per item to find it on the floor. Jeez. If they're taking 20 minutes, that... Yeah, that's wild. And so they were looking at RFID to try to be able to help with that as well. With RFID, you would know where things are in the store. And this is yeah. another one too, where the, you know, the, the, uh, we talked to um, a, a, a head of stores um, uh, executive who came from a large um, brand who had a lot of stores. And they deployed RFID in all their products in the branded stores. And they saw their sales go up like 60%. So why wouldn't everyone do RFID. I mean, we're talking about Japan's doing it with all their stores now, brands, you know, who are implementing it are taking off when it comes to sales. Like why wouldn't people, what's the holdup? That, that's the big mystery. Um, so if you can figure this out through your interview, please share. I always have to start asking around. I'm like, it seems like a no brainer. I mean, is it hard to get your manufacturers to do it? Is there? I think yeah, there's sure. a lot of processes that get touched is mm-hmm. one of the problems. And so, you know, there's, there's uh, your supply chain, uh, there's your, your, mer- your distribution center. There's all the staff in the distribution center. There's process changes at the store. And so there's a lot of pieces of this that, that end up getting touched. Mm-hmm. And we talked to one retailer, big uh, retailer, who they made a change on the POS. It was a touchscreen checkout for the staff. And uh, they had to do a training class to, cha- to train people on this change. And it was a two-hour training class for like 170,000 employees. And they said it was all extra time. It wasn't, you, know, you couldn't do it on the floor, right? So, so now you've got 340,000 extra hours of labor to make a simple change on a user, user interface, right? So, so I think when, you, when it gets to doing these kind of changes, you know, what happens when there's a return? 
What happens when there's a return, but the RFID tag is no longer in the item? So there's, there's a lot of things that have to change. I think what's going to happen is we're going to see branded um, retail uh, do this first because they control the supply chain. And, and, and you're going to see some really tremendous results. And in the, case, the example I gave you, when they, they, they were uh, head of branded retail at one brand and they went to another one, um, the challenge with the second one is they had a lot more suppliers. And so they had to manage you know, a lot of factories to supply their, their stores, even though they were all their own brand. Yeah. There's still a supply chain challenge. Well, it seems like Whole Foods and Amazon are going to be the first ones that can do it. I mean, they've got the ability to, especially with Amazon's operations and processes, that they've got the Whole Foods brand going on. They control all their supply chain. Well, and, and Amazon could decide to spend, you know, a gigantic amount of cash modernizing Whole Foods infrastructure and Wall Street wouldn't blink an eye. Yeah. Kroger could never do that because Wall Street wouldn't let them. And also just shows how there's, I don't know, makes you wonder about how a lot of companies right now aren't going the IPO route. And I kind of get it. I mean, I get get it hearing and seeing the incentives like that or lack of incentives of, you know, wanting to, I mean, they talk about destroy your business to make an even better one and how some of the best companies had to do that, whether it be the Netflix of the world's, um, but yeah, it seems like a lot is held back. Well, even when, private equity, yeah. we're seeing more and more where private equity will come in and, and the leadership of the company will be in favor of a private equity takeover because they can pull themselves off the Wall Street treadmill for a bit to make these mm-hmm. fundamental changes. Yeah, but isn't it usually a bad sign when PE comes in? Don't most of those companies end up going bankrupt? There's a couple kinds of you know private equity. You know, look at Dell. Uh, you know, not not a retail case, but you know, Dell. Um, they needed to retool Dell, mm-hmm. and they needed to to not be under the scrutiny of Wall Street for a while. And, uh, you know, Dell's done amazing things uh, through, the, through the use of private equity. Hmm. I think if the company is fundamentally unsound, private equity might be vulture capital where they yeah. come in and kind of, you know, strip, strip things down to the bones and, and get rid of it. Um, but I think, you know, fundamentally sound business that needs to, to make changes that aren't really possible to Wall Street. I think one, this is going to be one of the areas where I think there's going to be a lot of money made where private equity is going to go look at some of these really good retailers that fundamentally have to change. And if Wall Street doesn't change the model PL expectations, uh, I think yeah. private equity will, will become a much bigger factor. Ooh, that's a hot take. I like that. That's very interesting. So if there was some data right now that brands should be collecting at their retail locations, that's not really hard to implement, but they should be doing from the start, what comes to mind where you're like, right away, you should be collecting at least these five attributes on you know your customers as they come in and you don't need computer vision, you don't need, you know, beacons or RFID, but like you should at least have this to be able to give a better experience to your consumer. Anything come to mind? I think that the the thing that is most fundamental and is still shocking that all retailers don't do this, and that's just counting your traffic. Mm-hmm. Not counting it daily, but but knowing what your tra- what's happening with your traffic every minute. But I think you know, you know, understanding your traffic, that's the most important thing for an online business. Mm-hmm. Well, what's my traffic? You know, how long was this shopper in the store? You know, how long was this shopper on my site? Uh, you know, what things did the shopper browse through? What was their click path for my online? What was their path in the store? And, and for me, if, if I were going to, you know, leave uh, tech and move into retail, uh, I would uh, start with how does an online retailer excel? And how would, I, uh, how would I try to get all those same insights for brick and mortar? Mm-hmm. There's a tremendous amount of demand created real time in retail. You know, so we saw one study that says 60% of purchases in stores in the U.S. and Europe are for things people didn't know they were going to buy when they went to the store. Yep. So a huge amount of real-time demand. You see something, you like it, and you decide you want to buy it. 
Well, how disappointing is it when you see something you like and then it's out of stock in your size? Yeah, that's worse sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And that goes from, you know, being a point of excitement. You know, you got a little bit of excitement to buy something and then you're let down. And, and you know, what we would say is rather than having mannequins displaying items that the brand is paying you to show this week, and, and you know, and we talk to retailer after retailer after two or three days of something on the mannequin, it's sold out, but they're paid to run it for a week. And so they're, they're creating demand for something that's sold out because the contract of the brand said you need to show this item for a week. Oh. We talked to a giant apparel brand about this problem. And one of the, honestly, one of the C-suite executives was like, oh my God, that's why stuff's always out of stock in the store. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, give some flexibility and freedom to the staff to put what they have too much of. Mm-hmm. And we talked to one major department store change that, or chain that made that change a few years ago where they said, instead of you know, getting paid to run things on the mannequins, we're going to have our, our staff every evening look at inventory and whatever they have too much of, put that on the mannequin for the next day. And it's yeah. amazing how much they were able to sell through inventory before they had to mark it down. Oh, and so really what we would advocate is, you know, at the front of the store where you've got, um, you know, posters and prints, you know, maybe it's a department store and it's prom dress season. So you're showing prom dresses on the, on the poster. Well, that, that doesn't, you know, isn't really relevant to most of your shoppers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mo- most uh, girls are not prom dress age. Most moms are not, you know, at the age of having uh, daughters that are prom dress age. Most dads don't buy the prom dress. And, and, you know, put a more simple thing in it, put a digital sign at the front of the store with a camera that will anonymously look at age and gender. And then if you're really sophisticated, you could say, okay, well, now I'm going to tie it in my inventory system and, and I have too many of something. You know, Phoenix, it was a really dry winter. Um, we have too many raincoats. You know, I see a guy coming in and I've got too many men's raincoats, throw a men's raincoat on the screen. Yeah. And then even the next step, we can estimate the size of the shopper. So, you know, I've got a really big guy coming in, but I'm out of extra large raincoats. Don't show him a raincoat. And in these subtle things, and it's not like every shopper is going to buy a raincoat, but, but subtly putting something that's possibly more relevant on the screen than a prom dress is, is a great way to use that valuable real estate. And that's the kind of thing that an online retailer will do. Yep. Yeah. Zulily, you know, they introduce thousands of new products every day. Oh, Zulily, Yeah. Yes. We met with them one, at one point and they, they said in the morning, early in the morning, they have one landing page. And by 8 a.m., they have 280 unique landing pages, mm-hmm. depending on what demographic or what bucket you fall in for them as a shopper. And so when you go to their landing page at 10 in the morning, you're going to see something that's, that's full of things likely to be relevant to you. Yep. We were talking with Lenovo way early on in the show, and they were saying they have 85,000 different landing pages going on at any one point. I'm like, oh my gosh, how do you keep track of that? But he's like, oh yeah, that's just how you test and know what people want. And yeah, so it's just very interesting. But I think Zulily though, when they say how many landing pages they have, like they are all about talking about being personalized and stuff. But I think a lot of times they just think having a new name is them being personalized and they count that <laughs> towards a new landing page. Like that does not count. Just saying, hi, Stephanie or hi, Joe. Oh, well, the, the way they were explaining <laughs> to us is if you shop for baby clothes, you often mm-hmm. are buying baby clothes, your landing page would see have baby clothes on it. If you oh, yeah, bought okay. baby That's clothes, your landing page would not, would not have baby clothes. Yep. Yeah. That, that makes, that's more personalized. I like that. I think the key thing here is that this is a journey. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think, you know, anybody's going to go make all these changes overnight, but there's the ability to start using this information. Uh, and I think, you know, one starting, know your shoppers. It, it's amazing how many retailers, um, when we talk to them about, you know, what, what are your shoppers pain points? What are your shoppers not happy with? Um, they don't have a good answer, mm-hmm. which is really surprising. You know, it, for me, when we're, out trying to define solutions for the market, the first thing we look for is what's a business problem? 
You know, if I go into education, you know, what, what is the, the, the problem that educators are having right now that they're worried about? We go into hospitality, you know, what, what problem do they need help solving? Mm -hmm. And I often tell people, you know, at Intel, we have 3,200 PhDs. If we understand your problem, we can figure out how to solve it. Mm -hmm. yep. And it's amazing how many retailers don't spend time really uh, understanding what friction or what pain points do their shoppers have. I think they're going to have to now. I think now with everything that's happened and yeah, the acceleration of e-commerce, there will be, like you said, new expectations. And yeah, I think the theme is like now there's also all this new technology to use and utilize and maybe implement if it's allowed, but then putting that extra level of human curation on top of it when needed is going to be, you know, the way of the future. So like use the tech, but also have it curated and have the human feel to it that people are going to miss over this next year, especially with how much we've been at home all by ourselves. Well, and, after, and after people have really radically modified their behavior for a year. Yeah. You know, a few months was one thing, but, you know, we're coming up on a year where people have had to change pretty fundamentally how they, how they shop and live. How much of that's going to stick in permanently? Like I said, I, you know, I think grocery and some of those things are going to way more people will be doing that post pandemic than, than did pre pandemic and they'll stick with it. And you know, what else yeah. is going to fundamentally change? Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, I know we're running up on time. So I want to shift over to the lightning round brought to you by our friends at Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I'm going to ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Joe? I am ready. All right. What's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? Oh my gosh. Our, our uh, twin daughters were born uh, three months premature. The amount of, of help and leaning in uh, that we had as relatively young, new to Arizona uh, couple was, was just staggering. You know, probably 80 families leaned in to help us that we barely, wow. which is amazing. Man, I, I'm going to come to Arizona. That sounds a nice spot to be. How old are your twins? Uh, they're 30 today. So okay. that was a long time ago. Nice. I also have twin boys and I'm a twin. That's awesome. What's, what's up next on your reading list? You know, I'm really actually uh, studying uh, more around AI and frameworks and trying to get a bit smarter around, mm -hmm. you know, the, the nerdy geek stuff. So, you know, I don't have any, any great uh, casual reading uh, for me. Okay. It's more about the tech. Yep. Hey, that's good. Well, I was just going to ask you, what one thing do you not understand today that you wish you did? Is it AI or are there other things that you wish you understood? I, I grew up as a silicon engineer. And so I'm a hardware person. And uh, I'm not a software developer. I never have been. And, and so I'm really trying to, to understand the worldview of a software developer uh, more than a, than a hardware person. And, and at least I think I know what I do. I know I don't know everything. So it's, it's, it's yeah. almost like, you know, the first step of a 12 step program, acknowledging that I don't know everything. I'm there. Yep. Well, then maybe you want to check out the book I'm just starting to read. I think it's called Ask Your Developer by the Twilio CEO. I just started reading it. So oh, that sounds good. Yeah, there you go. Uh, if you were to have a podcast, what would it be about? And who would your first guest be? Uh, my podcast would be uh, on how technology is going to fundamentally transform uh, shoppers' lives. I love that. Who would your first guest be? Uh, I would actually like to have Bezos. As do I. Let's go get him. <laughs> Jeff, where you at? <laughs> See if we can help you with that. Yeah, I know. Is Moore's Law dead? Uh, Moore's law as a, you know, if you think about it purely as silicon, which is when, when Gordon uh, created that, it was really a silicon construct. Uh, mm -hmm. We're no longer on that same track, but, you know, at a system level in terms of, you know, what a system does for you, you know, we're on a similar, you know, kind of curve. 
Uh, you know, one of my favorite ways to explain this is the amount of compute, you know, if you hold up your smartphone, the amount of compute in your smartphone 10 years ago was 100x the volume. And, and the same thing's going to be true. So if you look at this, this uh, amount of compute today is going to be 1 100th the size in 10 years. Or you could say, hey, what would 100x, the, you know, do a giant server room is going to be what yeah. could be in your phone. And so if you think about it, it's not a matter of, you know, if I have enough compute to do something, it's a matter of when I have enough compute to do something. And I think that's probably the, to me the magic of Moore's law. And, and some people really get it and they really understand that it, it's just a matter of a few years until the compute is cheap enough to do what you want. Mm-hmm. If you go back, uh, you know, we talk about AI for a minute. We go back, you know, 10 years ago at Intel, we had a hundred thousand dollar computer workstation on every one of our factory tools. And these are, you know, $50 million tools. But, you know, workstation and a huge number of engineers creating algorithms to optimize our manufacturing. So we were doing AI, you know, that was very expensive 10 years ago. Very few manufacturing processes can afford that. You jump forward to today and it's simple and cheap and easy to have that amount of compute. And the, the maturity of this AI computer environment is so much uh, improved that, that anybody can really deploy what took an army of engineers and very expensive compute 10 years ago. Oh, I love that. I forget what show podcast I was listening to where they were talking about AI and saying a lot of the stuff that we have today, we had access to 10 years ago. We just didn't have the compute power and the ability to do it, but people knew it was coming. And I'd always be interested to hear from those people who like could see the vision and be like, I just need another five or 10 years of acceleration and then my product will work. That's very interesting. Yeah, if you if you imagine that you, the amount of compute that you can afford, whatever that number is, you know, thousand dollars, hundred dollars, whatever, but the amount of compute you can afford is going to you know double in performance every eighteen months. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, okay, well, double you can imagine that. What you don't realize is it's ten x in five years, and ten x yeah. is really hard to comprehend. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to extrapolate things like that. Well, I appreciate you answering that question. I was like, hmm, I know Joe will have a good answer for this one, even though it's very maybe off of e-commerce. But Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, well, you know, I work for Intel, obviously. Uh, you know, we, we do have a retail landing page at Intel. Uh, we actually don't sell anything to retailers. Uh, all of our work is done enabling uh, suppliers to retail to build better solutions. And I try to spend all my time, if possible, talking to retailers to better understand the business problems they have so I can help guide my partners in building better solutions. Cool. Sounds good. Well, people will go and find you if they have any questions, I'm sure then. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks, Stephanie. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you'll probably also love our e-commerce newsletter. To get it delivered straight to your inbox every week, sign up at mission.org slash upnextincommerce. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.